0: Well, I'm so very thankful to be back with you all uh, this year. I was telling my wife as after we checked into the hotel and we're heading back down the elevator over here, uh, just always what a joy it is to be back uh, with the Center Grove congregation. So thank you. It's it's a blessing, and it's a, a double blessing for me because Jana is with me this weekend. She finally started behaving herself, and so I finally let her come back. So um great to have her she's been helping out at apologetics press for a few years now so if you have any uh questions about the materials that we brought in the back feel free you can ask her if you'd like she might know a few things about those um i I don't make anything off of the sale sale of those materials though that those funds just go back to apologetics press to help us uh print more materials to buy paper books computers lights all that kind of good stuff uh, there are some free materials in the back. So there are some magazines back there—Reason uh, and Revelation and Discovery magazine for children. Also, there are a bunch of free DVDs in cases in the back. Uh, on uh, it's the uh, Kyle Butt uh, Blair Scott debate on the existence of God. All of those are free, and I brought two boxes. As you know, a lot of uh, uh, fewer people are watching things on DVDs these days, but still, some people do. Maybe a lot of people. Maybe you do. And so we have extra of those, and we'd be happy for you to take those, disseminate those to anyone that you think might be able to use those. So those are all free. Uh, Before I get into the lesson, let me just mention a few things since our, our topic this, our theme this weekend is on Jesus and the reality of Jesus or the historicity, the reality, and the deity of Jesus. And so the materials that I brought largely have to do with, mostly have to do with, that particular subject matter. We have approximately about 100 books in print at Apologetics Press, as well as a lot of tracks and videos and things. And so I couldn't bring, probably wouldn't do well to bring all those, but I did bring Behold the Lamb of God, uh, the Exploring Historicity, Deity, and Personality of Christ, Uh, I brought this one on Defending Jesus. This is book three for teenagers in a series on defending. So defending God and His creation, defending the Bible. Book three is Defending Jesus. And then I also brought the newest of of those, Defending Your Faith. Uh, And then this uh, little 100-page book, Reasons to Believe, I may have brought it before. It's about 100 pages, four chapters, seven reasons to believe in God. Three reasons to believe the Bible. Five reasons to believe in Jesus. Chapter three, chapter four is four reasons to do more than just quote unquote believe. In the sense of just having an, um, an acknowledgement of who Jesus is, and having you know going beyond that. But chapter three, five reasons to believe in Jesus will include a number of things that we will talk about this weekend. I don't know if you like to put puzzles together or not. Around the holidays, my family, we oftentimes have a puzzle sitting out on some kind of coffee table, and it just kind of over the few days, of whether it be Thanksgiving or Christmas, it kind of starts getting put together by various family members. Have you ever thought about how the Bible is is kind of like a puzzle? In fact, the the New Testament-inspired writers talked about talked about the mystery that has been revealed. I don't know if you like to watch mysteries. I I, I thoroughly enjoy mysteries. And there was one, I don't know what you would call it exactly. I would call it, I guess, in my mind, I think of it as a mystery. I believe it came out, or it was at the theaters, in August of 1999. Yay, those many, many years ago, long before some of you were born. And I remember walking out of a theater that night with my mind blown. I could not believe what I just saw. I mean, I could believe what I saw a little bit throughout this movie, but I couldn't believe what happened at the end of the movie. And since this movie is now nearly a quarter of a century old, I think it would be safe for me to say maybe a little bit about it. It's called Sixth Sense. And I, uh, you know, the way movies go, I watch movies, I, I try to almost always watch movies with VidAngel these days or Clear Play or something like that. I, I'm not one to recommend, you know, movies carte blanche. But in 1999, I was a young man who went to go see that movie. And to think that the main character of the movie, Malcolm, throughout the movie, you're watching Malcolm and his wife. And you're seeing Malcolm throughout the movie. And at the end of the movie, you learn that Malcolm has been... Sorry to spoil it. Malcolm has been dead the entire movie. I don't know if you saw that movie back then. Some of you were shaking your head like, yeah. I had to go... I didn't have to, but I did go see the movie again because I wanted to know what clues I missed. How did I miss the fact that he was shot at the beginning of the movie and he died and I never realized that he was no longer living until the very end of the movie. It, is, it was like, hey, I need to go back and see if I can put these clues or these pieces back together. You know, I, I read in Scripture where the Bible refers to refers to the gospel as as a mystery that has now been revealed to us. I mean, the Old Testament that we read has a number of prophecies, predictions, pictures of what is to come. And, and did those, when, when Jesus finally came, did everybody perfectly understand, understand Him and His mission? You know, even the ones who were closest to Him, even His family, His brothers and sisters, even His apostles who were with Him for three years didn't fully understand and comprehend the spiritual nature and total spiritual mission of this kingdom. Paul would say it this way in Colossians 1.26, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. Paul would say it this way when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. By revelation, He, God, made known to me, Paul says, the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. You know, the amazing thing about Christ... One of the many amazing things about him is that his story, if we can call it a story, not in a make-believe sense, but in a real, as real, as more real, I suppose, than as me standing here today. I mean, I was telling some family recently about how, I mean, I, I'm, I know that God exists based upon the evidence. I am as sure and certain that God exists as I am, that you and I are here this evening, And one of the amazing th- things about Jesus is the story of Jesus. So many details, hundreds of details of His life were recorded in kind of a mystery, if you will, before He actually came to earth. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus was... He eventually went up to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles. And when he went into Jerusalem, you might recall, as as there was so much concern about Jesus and so much confusion about who this man was. You know, here we are reading these things. Here we are knowing, learning things 2,000 years after the fact. And this is all in the past, and we can see it through the Scriptures perfectly. Well, these people were living in the real time. This was before John was written. This was before any of the New Testament was written. And the New Testament would not begin to be written probably for about 20 years or so after these events as the first New Testament books began to be penned. Now some, sometimes people wonder, well, why did God wait 20 years or roughly that many years For the inspired writers to begin writing the New Testament I don't know the Bible doesn't tell us but one thing I do know is when the fullness of time came God sent forth his son into the world meaning God sent Jesus into the world at exactly the right time for his purposes and so one thing you and I can take confidence in is our God who is omniscient he knows all things he knew exactly when the New Testament needed to begin to be pinned furthermore before the New Testament was pinned you had the inspired uh apostles and new testament prophets who were like walking bibles i mean they were god revealed to them messages that they orally spoke and then god eventually just a few years later had them write down but but the people in john 7 they were living in this wait a minute what's going on here who is this john chapter 7 And verse 12, there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good and others said no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. Well, is he good or does he deceive the people? Look at verses uh, 19 and 20. Did not Moses give you the law and and yet none of you keeps the law? Why why do you seek to to kill me? Jesus, they, they were seeking to kill him? Verse 20, the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? I mean, just... Look at the confusion already. Who is this? Verse 25, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is, is this not he whom, whom they seek to kill? So wait a minute. I thought Jesus said they seek to kill him. Then some of the crowd said, who's, well you're, what are you talking about? No one's seeking to kill you. And then some of them said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? They knew what was going on here. Verse 26, but look, he spoke boldly. And they say nothing. He speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? What did the rulers think about Jesus? Well, verse verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. They wanted this man cuffed and stuffed. Or is it stuffed and cuffed? They wanted him arrested. Let's get that guy. Verse 45 the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, "Why have you not brought him?" And the officer said, "No man ever spoke like this man." Imagine that. We need to go arrest this person. You go to arrest him and you're like, "Whoa. I can't arrest this not this guy. No one's ever spoken like this man." Verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered them, "Are you also deceived?" Oh, here we have the smarty pants. Smarty Pants, and I mean, these, these are the, supposed to be the real intelligent, I, maybe, I don't mean to be too hard on them, but I mean, they, they're know-it-alls. We're not know-it-alls. We don't need to be know-it-alls. None of us knows it all, and we certainly, even if we do know a little something, we don't need to be arrogant about it. They said, are you also deceived? Have any... Notice this question. This question, John seven forty-eight. This right here just flies all over me. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in Him? Should you believe something or not believe something just because quote-unquote smart people believe it? I'm, I'm going to be kind of blunt here, but I just want to say that's... That's a really dumb way to live life. Well, smart people said it. How many things could we go? Could we go just the last few years, maybe the last decade, and think about all the things we've been told by smart people that we are that we should believe or we should do? Like, well, let's, let's hold on just a second now. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm not sure I should follow that line of thinking. This is a logical fallacy. I just, I don't know what the official name of it is, but I just call it the smart people fallacy. You know, just believe what smart people believe because smart people say it. Well, who gets to decide who the smart people are? So the scribes and the Pharisees and all the, uh, the chief priests. <laughs> Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees or the Pharisees believed in Him? And then you can read John chapter 7, verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. See, we know everything. This crowd, they don't know anything. They're accursed. But then there's this man who came to Jesus earlier in the gospel of John. I know I'm spending a little time here in John 7. Thank you for being patient with me. We're going to jump over back over to the Old Testament here in a moment. But they said, you know, th- this, this crowd, they're a curse. But this man who came to Jesus earlier in the Gospel of John at, at night, Nicodemus, says, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And, and you would think that people might say maybe just and righteous and fair-minded people would say, oh, you might have a point here, Nicodemus. But their response was, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Hmm. You know, here's another lesson for us. You know, as far as just not believing everything that people say because people who have some, you know, credentials say it. That's not to say I'm, I'm not suggesting it's good to be, you know, uh, good to remain unlearned about various things. God wants us, and, and, and Christians don't have to be afraid of learning because truth has nothing to fear, and God wants us to pursue truth in every which way. But these individuals said, search, there's no prophet who's come out of Galilee, and the fact is that's, that's just not true. You know, there's a prophet in the Old Testament that spent three days and three nights in the belly of a, in belly of a what? A big sea creature, right? Some of you probably had some enjoyable times in Sunday morning or Wednesday night Bible class, singing a song or two about him. But you know, the, the Bible tells us in, uh, in kings and in second kings that uh, that Jonah was, Jonah, excuse me, Second Kings chapter fourteen, verse 25 that he was a prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Well, where in the world is Gath-Hefer? Well, if you flip over to Joshua chapter 19 and verse 13, you read of this city again, Gath-Hefer, and you read that it was in the land of or the territory of Joshua chapter 19 verse 10, the territory of Zebulun. Now, Zebulun was... Up there, the territory was right around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of what? Galilee. But I thought no prophet had come out of Galilee. Well, these these gentlemen were just wrong. Jonah had come from there. Here's the other thing that kind of is a little bit mind-blowing. Is that in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah whom you oftentimes hear called the, the Messianic prophet. He wasn't the only Messianic prophet. But he was one who, it's a 66 chapter book, a lot of messianic prophecies, prophecies of the coming Messiah, which is just, you, you want to talk about Jesus' life being recorded before he ever came? Isaiah is full of, including Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah talks about how there's going to be this great light who is going to come. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, he says, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Well, Eric, what's this all about? Well, if you read a few verses later, you read, For unto us a child is born. Unto us, this is Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, A son is given, and the government be upon his shoulders. shoulder, excuse me. and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So who... Oh, you know who this is talking about. This is talking about the coming Messiah. But I want you to go back up to how this chapter begins. Of course, there were no chapter breaks in the original. But as we have them today, and it's helpful just to quickly find passages. And you look at verse 1, you see the word Zebulun again. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Matthew actually quotes this passage In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus leaves Nazareth to go to Capernaum, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, well, I'll read verse 13, Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is Galilee. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying... And then you can read Isaiah chapters 9 and verses 1 and 2, what we just read. So, just kind of an FYI, you had those quote-unquote kind of smart people there in John chapter 7 who said, No, look, look at the Scriptures. No prophet has come out of Galilee. Well, the Messiah, in one sense, was coming out of Galilee. But you know, in another sense, He was also going to come out of Bethlehem in fact the crowd knew something about that because in John chapter 7 verse 42 they said has not the scripture said in fact I will uh, I'm going to read verses 40 and following therefore many some um, some manuscripts say some from the crowd when they heard this said truly this is the prophet others said this is the christ but some said will will the christ come out you know they asked will the christ come out of galilee has not the scripture said that the christ comes from the seed of david and from the town of bethlehem where david was so there was division remember this uh, this mystery this puzzle that we're putting together in one sense jesus was coming out of galilee I mean, the Messiah was going to come out of Galilee. Well, did he? Yes. Would the Messiah also come out of of Bethlehem? You remember the wise men, they came to to Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. Having seen the star in the east. You remember that, right? Now I want you to just pause for a second there in Matthew and I want you to flip back to the book of numbers for just a moment. Puzzle pieces put, putting together. I mean, this is I feel for people who think that the Bible is just an old book and not very special. Just a book written by average guys thousands of years ago. This book has such rich depth to it that we can study it for a lifetime and still not learn everything that we would like to learn from it. There was a Mesopotamian soothsayer named Balaam who in one of his prophecies about the Moabites said in Numbers 24 and verse 17... See, he, he, he's seeing a vision here, and he's communicating this. And he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. I don't know why exactly why the wise men knew that that star indicated that the Messiah had come into the world. I don't know exactly for sure, but what I do know is this, is that in, at the end of the book of Revelation, that John refers to Jesus as, or Jesus, he records Jesus speaking, saying, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and what? The bright and morning star. Star. You're starting to see, just see how, I mean, this, tonight we're just really looking at one little piece of this puzzle, of this messianic puzzle that was, that all the pieces that were given over a period of thousands of years before Christ ever came. And Balaam is prophesying and, and what's so also just so mind-blowing about many Old Testament prophecies is they they sometimes or oftentimes had kind of an a more immediate fulfillment because it, it certainly seems that that Balaam is prophesying here about the coming of David in a more near in a, in a, a near sense, nearer to his time, four hundred years or so. That's I know it's a long ways away, but it was a closer and a lesser application of the prophecy. I mean, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and David would become four hundred years later. A great king of Israel, but a thousand years after that, a star in the east. Somehow, some way, and all that we know that that the wise men received divine revelation because you remember after they saw Jesus, you remember they. They were instructed not to go back to King Herod. King Herod was a bad, bad dude. I don't normally say dude much when I'm teaching and preaching, but that word just comes to mind when I think of how bad he was. And the wise men came asking in, in Matthew chapter 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Can you imagine Herod, uh, king of the Jews? thought I'm king of the Jews. Where is He who is was born King of the Jews? For we have seen His star in the east and have come to worship Him. And they're like, wait a minute, where is the Christ to be born? Look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 5. He had asked the chief priests and the scribes, the people to come together. He inquired of them, verse 4, where Christ was to be born. So they said to Him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people and for the rest of our time here this evening I'd like for us just to think for a few moments about just about this right here hundreds of years after this prophet Made this statement, star in the east, and as you take passages like Revelation and, and Numbers chapter twenty four, and you bring them together, somehow, some way, Jesus came into this world, and there was a star that indicated it. And when King Herod became aware of this, he wanted to know what does the Scripture say about where the king would be born. Of course, he wanted to kill him. You remember, he tried. All sorts of male children, two years and younger, were slain as he sought to kill Jesus. About 700 years before this time, turn back to Micah for just a minute. Micah prophesies just one verse in the entire book of Micah, which is a fantastic... You know, Micah lived during the same time as Isaiah. Isaiah. In fact, I don't know. I wonder sometimes when I think of... You know how preachers love to get together and talk and eat and stuff. Fried chicken. I don't know how much fried chicken they ate back 2,700 years ago. But I wonder if Isaiah and Micah got together. Some of their prophecies are very similar. Micah was from Moresheth, about 20 to 25 miles um, west of Jerusalem. And Micah and Isaiah uh, they were prophesied during some very difficult times I mean Micah tells us at the beginning of of the book he prophesied during the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah Ahaz was one of the absolute worst people that you're going to read about in the Bible I mean terrible so bad that he sacrificed his own offspring and there was a terrible moral decline during his reign even though some of the time of, of Jotham had, had good times and there were good things that he did many of the people were very wicked during his time and, and Hezekiah who was one of the best kings of, of Judah you see Micah prophesied during their reigns but there were many problems still on Micah's day in fact Micah would say things like I mean he And he was a preacher now. He he got... You know, preaching is not all about getting on to people. Preachers and teachers and shepherds, you know, there are different times that different things need to be taught on and said. But, you know, when people are being real cantankerous and people are being real bad, do they need to be shown the error of their ways. Micah was trying to do that here. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Hear now, O heads of Jacob. I mean, he's he's getting the top dogs now. O heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Chapter 3, verse 11. Her heads judge for a bribe. That's totally against the nature of our God. Our God, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17, a a verse that I think that is just a good one to remember. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the the great God mighty and awesome who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. I am far from a perfect man and I make all sorts of mistakes. But I think if I know my heart, I can just say I want to be like God. I fall short. But isn't that... I mean, don't Christians want to be like Christ? Don't godly people want to be like God? God does not show partiality. He does not take a bribe. And we need leaders like that. And the leaders of, of Micah's day, he said, well, the heads judge for a bribe? Micah 3 verse 11. Her her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. You know, I'm I'm thankful that I have been able to support my family through the preaching of the gospel for a number of years. But again, if I know my heart, I I can tell you that if you all decided not to give me anything to come up here and preach, that's not going to keep me from preaching. Well, You might have said, well, Eric, you should have told us that ahead of time. But uh, I'm just saying... You know, if some church just says, well, Eric, we're not going to give you anything for teaching and preaching. I'm not going to say the next time I'm asked to go somewhere to preach, well, you know, people just don't treat me right. I'm going to quit preaching. I don't preach for money. But I'm thankful I have been able to support my family this way. It is, you know, we, we teach and we preach, whether it's teaching our family whether it is teaching at our local congregation or other people, our neighbors, our friends. We teach and we're not taking bribes and we're not changing what the Scripture says just to suit the situation at hand. We teach it lovingly. We teach it kindly. We teach it patiently. But we teach because we love God and we want to be like God and we want to be like faithful prophets like Micah. So it was during all of this kinds of just crazy time that Micah's prophesying. And then we read in Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. There's a whole lot we could say. Let me back up before we go to Micah 5.1 and just say here, here's, here's one uh, just kind of summary of Micah and Isaiah's time. Micah chapter 3 and verse 2. You who hate good and love evil. Mm. You know, sometimes we think that the evil that we see in our day, it's like the only time it's ever happened in world history. Sadly, a lot of, for thousands of years, there's just been a lot of you know, misbehaving that's been going on and sad stuff. Where Isaiah, a, a contemporary of Micah, who said, you recall, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These are the days in which Micah was prophesying, in which Isaiah was prophesying, in the days of Jotham and Ahaz and good old Hezekiah. Not a perfect man, but a good leader. The Bible tells us in Micah chapter 5 and verse 1, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. What is that talking about? Well, Micah doesn't tell us. Here it is. Micah wrote this or prophesied this 2,700 years ago. So I don't know that I can say 100% sure exactly what this is referring to, but it would seem it's very likely when the Assyrians came and laid siege on Jerusalem. And they sent, the king of Assyria sent a spokesman for him known as, some translations uh, translate it the Rabshakeh, brings the Rabshakeh who is not just in the Assyrian language but in, you know, in Hebrew so that everyone in Jerusalem who wants to could, could hear him taunt the righteous good king of Israel. You ever been taunted? I mean, this guy, if you you go back and and read 2 Kings chapter 18, you read that, you're going to just see where they're just making fun of and just taunting the Israelites saying, this king's not going to save you. Give yourselves up. And it seems that that's what Micah, I mean, it was dark, dark times. Like, what do we do here? hundred years later, you would have Judah go into Babylonian captivity. Now, I will say, you recall what happened to those Assyrians who were gathered around Jerusalem? And, And King Hezekiah was putting his trust as Isaiah would encourage him to do, and as the righteous would do, put their trust in God, and God took care of the Assyrians... In one night, a hundred and eighty-five thousand were slain, died. There were dark times. And this is what Micah says next. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You know, the only prophet in all of the Old Testament who told us about where the Messiah would be born was Micah. Unless I've missed something. Micah, out of the thousands of Judah, he shall come from Bethlehem, Ephrath. What in the world is Ephrath or Ephrathah? Well, as you read through scripture, you're going to find going back to the at the death of Rachel, the wife of Jacob, when she died, she was buried in Ephrath or Ephratha, also known as Bethlehem. Genesis chapter 35 around verse 18. When you go to the book of Ruth, you'll see where Naomi's husband and sons, that they came from, they were Ephrathites and they came from Bethlehem. Those Bethlehem Ephrathah was Bethlehem of Judea. And you know who else came from there was was Jesse that you'll read about, by the way, at the end of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4 verses 18 and following. That not only did did Boaz come from Bethlehem, not only did Naomi's people come from Bethlehem, but later you can read that their descendants Jesse came from Bethlehem. And who else? Who was Jesse's son who came from Bethlehem? David. David. And before Jerusalem became the city of David in the sense of he reigned in Jerusalem, there are references in Scripture of Bethlehem being the city of David, his city. You remember that the prophet Samuel went to anoint the son of Jesse. Not the oldest son, but the youngest son who was from Bethlehem. You remember when he, he went to, uh, when, when Goliath was out taunting the Israelites in 1 Samuel, the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17, that Jesse was out keeping the sheep where? Feeding the sheep in Bethlehem. The city of David, in the sense that that's where he grew up. Where would the Messiah come? Well, those, those common people in John chapter 7 knew that he would come out of Bethlehem in the sense that he would actually be. Born there. 700 years before the Messiah came into the world. You know, to our young people as well as our older ones, I would say this is fascinating to me because I believe, number one, this shows us how special the Bible is. What book can do that? What book has done that? A part of it was written hundreds of years before the time of Christ and it said he would be born in Bethlehem. It says that he would go down into Egypt, which by the way he did. Read Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 3. You'll you'll see where he went down to Egypt for a time, right? Because he was trying to escape whom? Herod. And then after being in, in Egypt, which was prophesied in the Old Testament, he would go be raised in Nazareth... He would be a Nazarene in that sense and he would eventually be out of Galilee. What was his hub during his evangelism efforts and his ministry the last three years of his life? What was the hub? The Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, the land of Zebulun, out of which the Messiah would come in that sense. But Micah says... Micah, I believe, helps us see the inspiration of the Bible. I believe that Micah helps us see the, the true nature of Jesus. It, 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 it gives us messian, a messianic prophecy about the coming of the Messiah 700 years before he actually came, named the city. You know, is there any uh, record of where you would be born 700 years before you were born there? See, that's, that's something that's real special, very unique. Like, doesn't happen. You know, I wasn't, I don't remember being born in Macon, Georgia back in 1975, but I've got a birth certificate that says I was. And two parents who told me that's where I was born. My dad wasn't around for a few months. He was still back, he was in New Zealand at that time doing mission work and didn't make it back overseas here before I was born. That guy, I tell you what, didn't care to see me born, I guess. No, I didn't really work out that way, but that's all right. I don't, I try not to hold him against him. I try not to. But this passage also tells us something else about Jesus. Notice what it says. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Though you were little Bethlehem Ephrathah. Notice, by the way, let me also say this. Again, there's just so many fascinating things. I probably got a little bit of this jumbled up. And I'm sorry. Forgive me for that. But the Bible tells us, as we've already noted, that, that Jonah was from Zebulun in Galilee. And we noted... In a couple of those passages in 2 Kings and Joshua that there was a, well, we didn't, probably didn't talk about it, but in one of those passages it refers to there being a Bethlehem in Zebulun. That's not this Bethlehem. That's Bethlehem in Galilee. Notice how specific Micah was. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Of the thousands and thousands of places that the Messiah could have been born, he names this one. The, the, the specificity, the, how specific the prophets were. The, no one knows the future but God. I believe that one of the strongest arguments for the, for the inspiration of the Bible is that the Bible writers knew things they could not have known. Long before things ever happened, they wrote about them. And that's humanly impossible. We all know that. Jana and I we we drive by this place all the time on our way to and from work. That's like a palm reading fortune telling kind of place and they never have business there. And you and I know why? Because no very 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 few people are going to pay 10 bucks to go get your future told. Cuz if they knew the future they'd tell us who's going to win the Super Bowl. Is that this weekend by the way? Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, you might think you know who's going to win, but you really don't know. And you don't know what the score is going to be. You know, not, that, not that I think God cares about the Super Bowl, but He knows everything that's going to happen. And you know what He knew thousands of years ago? Everything. And He gave us everything about... everything we needed to give people evidences for the inspiration of the Bible and the deity of Christ and the historicity of Christ, including where the Christ would be born. Think, again, just think through this. God could have been so vague about where the Messiah would come from. Like, well, he's going to be born in this land somewhere by these people, these, some people. But in Genesis chapter 12, he tells us that he's going to bless all nations through... Abraham. I said, "Well, what's so what's the big deal about that?" Well, notice he didn't he didn't say through Nahor or Haran, Abraham's brothers. It it was through Abraham. And then he said, and again, this is thousands of years, and Moses wrote this hundreds of years before it ever happened. I mean, listen, Eric, how do you know that? Let me just say this. If you have a book translated into another language hundreds of years, we'll just say a couple of hundred years before Christ, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, then you know the Old Testament was around before then, right? I mean, so I'm just saying we have like historical and archaeological proof. Uh, By the way, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls that were, that prove the Old Testament scriptures... Every book of the Old Testament but one or two were in, parts of it were in the collection of the Dead Sea Scrolls that came from the Qumran caves around the Dead Sea. And even skeptics and liberal scholars would say, yeah, these go back 100 or 200 years before Christ. And so when Moses says that that the Messiah is going to come from Abraham, not one of his brothers, and that, and that the Messiah is going to come not only from Abraham, but but he's going to come from um, come from one of the other sons of Abraham. I mean, like, is it going to be one of those sons he had? Maybe he shouldn't have had, like through Hagar, named Ishmael, or is it going to be one of those sons that he had? Later, when he took a wife by the name of Keturah, maybe this was after Sarah died. I, I mean, chron- chronologically speaking, not everything is written in chronological order, but it would seem that that is probably the case. You know, he had sons named Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Any of those? No. No, the Bible is very specific. The Messiah is going to come from Abraham, and he's going to come from Isaac, and which son of Isaac, Jacob or Esau? Oh, Jacob. Now, listen, just because the Messiah was going to come through this lineage, there's no, it's not like God said, I'm going to choose these individuals because they are the most righteous. Have you read the book of Genesis lately? Have you heard and seen what some of the. Did you know that Jacob, excuse me, that, uh, yeah, that Jacob went to, to Isaac and dressed up and acted like he was his brother Esau? To steal a blessing? Does that sound like a good thing to do? Or like a lying kind of thieving thing to do? See, God's amazing because he can work out his good even through the terrible choices that people can make. But, but But then Jacob had a number of sons. You remember how, you remember Jacob and how Laban treated him, right? I mean, Jacob worked seven years for this woman named Rachel. He loved Rachel. And then Jacob did, I mean, I can't, he did a switcheroo on them. I don't know how Jacob didn't know, but next thing, he woke up the next morning, he's got, he's married Leah, apparently. And then he works another seven years for Rachel. And you remember all the sons that they had, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. And then he had sons with uh, their maidens, their maids, Bilha and Zilpah, is that right? Twelve sons of Jacob and they had a daughter. and It wasn't Joseph. That's not through whom the Messiah would come. Not Joseph. Not Benjamin. Not Dan or Naphtali. Not even Levi. I mean, the, the, the father of the Levites through whom Aaron and Moses would come. God said it's going to be through Judah. And then when Samuel went to go anoint, you know, about a thousand years later, anoint the next king of, of Judah, of Israel, surely it's going to be the oldest son of Jesse jesse through whom the messiah would come as well the prophet isaiah tells us nope not don't anoint jesse's oldest son well maybe it's the second nope third nope the youngest david throughout the old testament you just see and you just see just very honed in specific this is through whom the messiah would come well would he come out of jerusalem Surely Jerusalem. He would come out of Jerusalem. That's that's the, that's the big city, right? That's the capital of Judah. At least after about seven years into the reign of David it became. It was a Jebusite city and then it was conquered by Judah and became the capital of Israel. No, Jesus wasn't. He didn't come out of Jerusalem. He didn't come out of Jericho. He didn't come out of Dan or Beersheba. Of the thousands... He came out of Bethlehem. Very specific prophecy made 700 years before He actually came as the son of Mary and Joseph. Born. And by the way, why were they in Bethlehem? Hmm. Maybe it just kind of seemed like God providentially arranged that, right? Right? They journeyed down to Bethlehem to the city of their forefather David for the census. And that's where he was born. That's where the Messiah came into the world. Our time is about up and I just want to say thank you for being here on a Friday night. It's nasty. It's wet outside. Thank you for being here and taking your time. You've been working this week or in school this week. Maybe just... Busy lives, but we've been able to for, for about an hour tonight to meditate on our Maker and our Messiah. Who, by the way, Micah says a chapter earlier, also set up this grand kingdom that we are a part of. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 tells us about this grand kingdom that would, be, that would be like a mountain of the Lord's house, verse 1. And would be established on the top of the mountains. It's figurative language that Scripture oftentimes gives us of, of a particular kingdoms, oftentimes referred to as, as mountains, or at least sometimes. The Lord's house. You ever read about the Lord's house in the New Testament? Are we the household of God? We read that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 were the household of God. So my question as we close tonight this kingdom that was prophesied about, the king, by the way, the king who is an everlasting king, as we read in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, this ruler whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting, as prophesied, came to this world, and as prophesied established an eternal kingdom. I've enjoyed being on teams in my life. A lot of losing teams, but maybe some winning. I've enjoyed being a part of different groups in my life, different clubs, different, well, been enjoyed being a part of the Lions family since I was born into this world. But there's nothing. There is absolutely nothing that can compare to God's family are we imperfect? absolutely we mess up do we say silly things sometimes do we make mistakes do we get on people's nerves sometimes but yeah we're we're not perfect and do we sin sometimes? yes 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10 but we are determined to walk in the light and not in darkness together in the kingdom of Christ, the most precious house on earth, the most precious body on earth, the most precious thing that I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of. It's everlasting. And it will go on long after this life is over. We're going to be with King Jesus, with our Father, with the Holy Spirit, with all the saved, with all the righteous, angelic beings forever and ever. If tonight you're not in the kingdom of Christ and you are amenable to the gospel of Christ, you can become one of His servants tonight. Don't take that lightly. I mean, when you, when you confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you're, you're claiming He is the eternal one that Micah prophesied about who would come into this world as Savior, as King, as Lord, as God. And we're saying, I'm going to follow that ruler, and Micah called him a ruler, and he's going to be my ruler, and he's going to be the standard that I'm going to try to follow. And when I mess up by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, it will continually cleanse us of our sins if we have obeyed the gospel of Christ. If we have confessed faith in Jesus, turned away from sin, that's repenting, being sorry for it, turning 180 degrees toward Jesus, walking with Him, confessing Him and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't done that tonight, you can. Listen, I don't know if we have a baptistry here or not, but I know there's been enough rain today. I believe there's, we can find some water somewhere. And if you are a Christian, maybe we've wandered off course. May God help us to hear the call. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears come, and let him who thirsts come, and whosoever will, let him hear the gospel of Christ. Let let him answer the invitation of our Lord as we stand and as we sing.